Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 actually will pick up the very last verse of the previous chapter. And we'll read together to verse 11. As I mentioned in the first word on worship in your worship booklet, there's some interesting things in regard to this passage. You'll notice, and I'll talk about this again, that it's in brackets, but I do believe we have good reasons this morning to consider this the word of the Lord for us. But in order to hear God's word, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray, Father, that through Jesus, your Son, you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would point our eyes to fairest Lord Jesus, and that we might see him to be a beautiful Savior who speaks a word of mercy and grace to soothe our aching hearts. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, beginning in chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said just a moment ago, there's all sorts of questions about this passage, uh, about whether it belongs in John's gospel at all, and if so, whether it belongs in this place in particular, or earlier in John chapter 7, or at the end of John's gospel period in, in John 21. You'll notice, of course, that our ESV Bibles, uh, this section is framed by double brackets. And in addition, it has this note at the top, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. And so the question we have to ask is, should we trust this passage? Is it authentic? Should we consider it to be Holy Scripture? I think it seems clear from the details of the text that this is an authentic scene written by an eyewitness. 
The, the remembrance of Jesus standing and stooping multiple times, the, the writing in, in the dust of the ground with his finger, the, the filing out of the Pharisees from the oldest to the youngest, the, all of these details, I think, would have been those that an eyewitness would have remembered and reported. And so I think it's authentic. But, but if we presume that this is an authentic account of what Jesus said and did, then we ask this, a follow-up question. What, why did the various scribes who copied John's gospel decide to keep this fragment and to put it here, right here? Well, I think the scribes kept this fragment because it serves as a short summary of the gospel of Jesus. This is the lawgiver himself. The one has already said in John's gospel that Moses wrote about him. He's the one who could have condemned the woman and yet gives a full and free pardon to sinners like you and me. And, and I think it gets placed right here because just a few verses before this, in John chapter 7, verse 51, uh, Nicodemus had begged his pharisaical colleagues, does, not, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? That was Nicodemus's question, and, and his colleagues brushed him off. But, but here, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're forced to hear what Jesus says, forced to learn what Jesus does. And so the question is, what is Jesus about? What is his teaching? What is his word? Free pardon. Freedom from sin. No more guilt or shame or condemnation. No more accusation, whether from the law or whether from our own hearts, whether from the voices of authority figures like our parents or teachers or bosses in our heads. What was Jesus teaching? What does he do? He says, neither do I condemn you. And that's a good word. That's a good word for sinners like us. Because... Because we are ultimately confronted by the law's condemnation. This scene in which these words come, it's said at the temple. Which makes sense, I think, of its placement here, right at the end of chapter 7 and beginning John chapter 8. We know from John chapter 7 that Jesus had gone to the temple for the festival of tabernacles. John chapter 7, verse 37, on the eighth day of the feast, Jesus had stood up and he had declared that, that he gives the Spirit as living water, which is a sign of the new creation coming. Now, here in this passage, in, in chapter 8, verse 2, what we find is that Jesus is back in the temple, right? It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and, and all the people have come to him. And so he sat down in order to teach them. He, he's seated not just as a, a rabbi, as a teacher of God's way, he's also seated as a judge who decides according to God's words, according to God's law. And it's in that capacity as a judge that the scribes and the Pharisees come to him and, and they bring this woman this woman caught in the act of adultery, that is said twice to emphasize it, both in verse 3 and verse 4. She's been caught in the act. And they place this woman in the midst of the crowd so that every eye turns to her. 
and, and all shame might be hers. And they bring, these Pharisees, these scribes do, they bring the law's accusation against her. Do you see what they said in verse 4? Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Well, there's a couple of things working here in what the Pharisees said. Uh, first, the, the Pharisees are referring not just to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but they're also referring to passages like Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 to 24, which demanded the death penalty for those who commit adultery. But, but second, they're, they're claiming here that having caught the woman in the act that they actually had satisfied the law's requirement in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, that there'd be two witnesses for sin that, that's going to receive the death penalty. And while their accusations were flawed, more on that in a minute, the Pharisees' general sense of, of what the law does, of how the law operates, is exactly right. Because God's law accuses. God's law demands the death of sinners, which means that God's law stands against you. It accuses you. It demands your death, your curse, your eternal punishment. Why? Why is that the case? Why is the law not just accusing this woman, but God's law is accusing you. Well, because from the Garden of Eden to this very day, God's law demands of you. And it demands perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. Not just in your actions, but in your very thoughts. Not just in your words, but in your very motivations. You see, Jesus himself told us that, that God's requirement of obedience is perfection. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the word there for perfect doesn't simply mean complete or mature. No, it really does mean perfect. God demands perfection as we obey his law, and we must obey it personally, that is, individually, each of us, not relying on others outside of us, our parents, our society, but individually we must personally obey. And we must obey it perpetually. If we fail in one point, we break the whole law of God. The Apostle James tells us that. James chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so those who fail to keep God's law, we open ourselves to its condemnation to its accusation. God's law comes to us and says, you have failed. You have transgressed God's law. You have sinned and you deserve death. Paul tells us that. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, quoting Deuteronomy 27, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And so when, this, when the Pharisees 
brought this woman before Jesus, accusing her with God's law and demanding her death, they weren't wrong. No, God's law thunders at us. Justice demands of us. God's law accuses us and condemns us. However, the way that the Pharisees represent the law's accusations, it, they, act, it, they actually left something to be desired, at least in terms of their accuracy. I mean, for one thing, if they've caught this woman in the act, in the very act, well, presumably there was a man present also, wasn't there? And those passages, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, demanded death to both adulterous partners. So where was the man in all of this? Doesn't he then stand accused also? But for another thing, if these Pharisees were in fact witnesses, how did that happen exactly? Was this all a setup? Or could it be that one of them was the adulterer and the others were actually covering for him? I wonder if something like this isn't behind what Jesus ultimately tells these accusers. I mean, when they bring the, the woman to him and they bring their charge, what does Jesus do? Well, verse 6 tells you. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What was he writing? Well, I would love to know. The commentators spent a lot of time guessing but everything we might say is just a guess. At minimum, though, Jesus, having been asked to offer a judgment, him bending down and writing in the dust certainly was a delaying tactic. He was meeting their request for a judgment with silence. And so what happens? Well, verse 7, they, they continue to ask him, continue to demand that, that he issue a ruling. So what happens? As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Uh, this is actually has a side reference again to God's law, to Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, which required the accusers to be the first to actually stone the accused. But, but what we actually need to see here is the way that that Jesus applies the law's demands in such a way that everyone stands accused. Not just this woman, but the, but the Pharisees themselves. You see, they weren't accurate in the way they were applying the law. The law. They weren't accurate in, in applying it to the situation that they brought to Jesus. But above all, they weren't accurate in applying God's law to themselves. Because, of course, they were not innocent not only in this discreet situation, but in the reality of their own hearts. If God's demand was to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, if God demands perfect personal and perpetual obedience, then, then the Pharisees, they, they stand accused as well. They stand condemned before God's law as well. But listen, so do you. And so do I. We stand condemned because we are sinners who sin. We were conceived in iniquity. We were born with an inherit, inherited and inherent depravity. Uh, 
a, a poison within us that, that leads us to transgress God's law unfailingly and repeatedly. And that means then that every single person deserves God's wrath and curse. We all stand condemned and we all should dread the judgment of God. That's why these men left. Uh, the older ones who, who knew what their hearts were really like, perhaps. The younger ones who perhaps concocted the entire scheme last. But from oldest to youngest, they left because they realized that they had, they had just been judged by a holy and just God. And they had heard the law's demands. And having heard what the law demanded of them, they stood condemned. And so they fled. But friends, where do we go? Because you and I, were condemned. Where do we go? Where do we run? Where do we hide? Well, we have nowhere to go. What do we do? Well, we can do nothing. We can do nothing except hear what Jesus says next. Hear and receive Jesus Christ's declaration of grace and mercy. What does he say? Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Friends, here is a gospel word that you and I desperately need to hear. Here is, here is a word that we didn't make up, something that we didn't gin up from within us, an external word that comes to us through Jesus' own lips by the power of the Spirit where Christ comes with a declaration of pardon. I mean, where the law demands retribution. What does Christ declare? What does he offer? He offers free pardon. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. His earthly life satisfies the, the law's demand for, for perfect and perpetual obedience. His death on the cross, his blood, satisfies the law's demand that the sinner dies. All my and your condemnation for having broken the law, all your and my condemnation that where we deserve death, it's all fallen on Jesus Christ. And when we sinners go free, when we put our trust in Jesus... Justice looks at what Jesus has done and smiles and asks no more. Asks nothing more of us. And so if the law points to what has not been done, Christ actually comes and declares all that he has done. Because he's done it. He's completed everything that law requires. If the law asks about perfection, well, Christ points to his own perfect work for us. And if the law raises the question about personal obedience, Christ holds himself out as our substitute, one who freely gave himself in the place of others. Charge it to my account, he declares. And if the law still seeks to force itself upon us, to accuse us, to condemn us, Jesus shouts in our ears and in our hearts, Neither do I condemn you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, what a glorious external word. What a glorious gospel word that Jesus speaks to us. 
one that soothes our sorrows and covers our shames and, and cleanses us from every guilty stain. But not only does Christ declare pardon, pardon for all of our crimes, all, all, of our, all the ways we've broken the law of God and failed in the task of, of personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. But Christ also gives us freedom. He declares freedom to us. After all, Jesus says to this woman, from now on, sin no more. Now, this isn't a reintroduction of the law. It's not as though Jesus is saying to her, I've set you free, so now keep the law perfectly in your own strength, in your own power. Keep its demands. No, what, what he's saying is, I've set you free now. You don't have to listen to sin's demands. You are set free from sin's dominion. You're set free from sin's law. You're, you're set free from sin's incessant and imperious requirements to obey your desires. You're free. You're truly and really free. And as we're going to hear in a couple of weeks, the one whom Christ has set free, he is free indeed. You see, that's the other part of, of, of the good news that Jesus offers. Another part of his grace and mercy. We are now free to serve in the new way of God's spirit and been set free from sin to become God's own slave. Grace always leads from pardon for sin to freedom from sin. It was the case for this woman, friends, and it's the case for each one of us. Because when we hear that we are no longer held fast in sin in nature's night, when we hear there is therefore no condemnation now we dread, well, then we want to serve this Jesus who was so good to us. A real, vibrant joy comes to us when this gospel word, this declaration of Christ is driven into our hearts. We can't help but rejoice in the freedom he gives. I can see the scene in my mind's eye many, many years ago now. There were five ruling elders and I we were meeting with a young woman, I'll give her the name Jen, that's not her name, and her fiancé. And we were meeting in my office because um, they weren't married yet, but Jen was pregnant. And as we heard the story, and as we heard her confession, and as we saw her tears, we wept with her for her sin, but then I opened my Bible after a few moments, and I read her this passage. And I said, Jen, I bet you, I guess you feel like this woman, and we are the Pharisees who've come to stone you because of your sin. And, and through her tears, there was a kind of wry smile, a moment of recognition. And I said, I want you to hear this clearly. What this passage is saying is that Jesus doesn't condemn you, and neither do we. Go and sin no more. And in that moment, her tears stopped. Her, her shoulders released. Where she had been hunched up before, you could see her just visibly release. She began to smile. Because she heard the good word of pardon and freedom that comes to sinners like us 
through Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know what's happened to you in your life over this past week. Some of you are carrying deep and profound guilt and shame because of what's happened this past week, or it may be something that's happened years ago. And though you've confessed it, you still cling to it because you think you still need to do penance for that thing, still need to be punished, still need to to hold on in some way. Listen. Listen. I'm standing in Christ's stead this morning to tell you what Christ himself says. Neither do I condemn you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free. And friend, that's really good news. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, the only way we could possibly hear that good word is because your blood and righteousness is in fact our beautiful dress. You have clothed us and all that you've done for us. Your act of righteousness and obedience to the law, your passive righteousness through your passion, through your death on the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that you would allow your good word to take root in our heart and build, bid all our guilty fears goodbye. Lord, grant us this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals. Let's turn to number 520, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf's beautiful hymn.